We have an anchor. The anchor of the soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. We're going to be looking at Luke 24, the passage that was read just a moment ago. We're going to be looking specifically at Luke chapter 24. Verses 44 through 49. And we're going to be talking about how the Lord's work is in our hands. If you look at the scriptures and you think about all of the things that are recorded in the 66 books of the Bible, there are no doubt many, many things that are said about the coming of Jesus, his work here upon planet earth. His ascension to heaven and the fact that he will one day come again. And you could break it down into four phases if you wanted. The Old Testament being phase one. Phase two, of course, would have to do with the ministry, the life of Jesus. Phase three would be the period in which we now live. And that is, we talk about the birth of the New Testament church. And the work of the church today. Phase four would have to do with the second coming of Jesus. And the culmination of all things as we know them. And so in Luke 24 we have an account of Jesus instructing the apostles on what to do after he ascends to heaven. There's a lot of application in these verses for us. I want to begin by first of all calling attention to the foretelling of the Lord's work. Now you have to bear in mind that Jesus Christ has gone to the cross, He has risen from the dead, and He is about to leave the disciples, the apostles. He's going to ascend to heaven. And so He gives them some marching orders, so to speak. And so in verse 44, Jesus brings to mind the foretelling of his work. And he begins by speaking about his presence among them. Listen to what he said in verse 44. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you. Can you imagine having the opportunity to spend some three years listening to Jesus and observing his ministry. The apostles had that opportunity. They had the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4 and about verse 13, it was said of Peter and John that the Sanhedrin council took knowledge that these men had been with Jesus and so they had the opportunity to see the Lord at work. As I think about His presence among them, I'm reminded of the fact that they had the opportunity to observe a lot of evidence, didn't they? You think about measuring the evidence that was before them. First of all, the message that they heard. 
John tells us in chapter 7, verse 46, no man ever spoke like this man. Jesus Christ left a great mark, not just upon the hearts and lives of the apostles, but those who had the opportunity to hear him. And so many, many people had the opportunity to listen to Jesus. These men had the opportunity to hear him firsthand. And then, what about his works? You remember in John chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus would say, the very works that I do testify of me, that the Father has sent me all of the miracles that have been recorded, that Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 11, there's an interesting account of John the Baptist sending two of his disciples to Jesus and asking the question, Are you the one that was to come, or do we need to look for another? And Jesus said, you go back and tell John that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk. He said, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Think about everything that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. And so these guys had the opportunity to measure the evidence. They saw all the miracles, they heard his words. And then I think about the conclusions that no doubt they came to as a result of observing firsthand his ministry. And so they had the evidence before them. And then what was their their final exam? In other words, after they examined him, what was the conclusion? Do you remember? The Bible tells us that Simon Peter said in John chapter 6, We have come to know and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They came to the conclusion that Jesus was everything he claimed to be. That is the divine Son of God. And that's the conclusion that we must come to. There are a lot of folks that have many, many questions about Jesus. And I would encourage them, examine the evidence. It's before you. Look at the evidence. And then draw your conclusions. And hopefully and prayerfully the conclusion is that Jesus is the Son of God as spoken of in Scripture. And so he talks about his presence among them. And then he alludes to the great prophecies that were penned. Note again what he says in verse 44. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now you can go back to the Old Testament and there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies speaking of the coming of Jesus Christ. Beginning in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, we have the gospel in seed form. Moses, of course, announces to us, and that is in the law of Moses, he announces the coming of the promised seed. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls on a man by the name of Abraham. And he tells Abraham that through his seed, all families, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And you can trace that seed line through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, 
And then you get down to the writings of Samuel, and Samuel tells us that this seed, spoken of in Genesis 3.15, would come through the family of David. Isaiah said in chapter 7, verse 14, that the promised seed would be born of a virgin. In chapter 9, verse 6, he said, His name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In chapter 53, there's a narrative of the suffering servant. The fact that Jesus would suffer for the sins of the many. He would ask the question, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would make his entrance into the world. And then Zechariah in chapter 13 said, In that day a fountain shall be opened for sin and uncleanness. You can look at the psalm, Psalm 22. Many, many allusions to the coming of Christ, specifically relating to his death. I think about the statement recorded by the psalmist in chapter 22. When Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what Jesus is saying is that the Old Testament announced His coming. Now, there's a second thing I want you to see in our study. First, we think about the foretelling of the Lord's work and then the fulfillment of the Lord's work. In verse 45, Luke said, And He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. First of all, there is an allusion to the revelation recorded about him. We just talked a minute ago about the prophecies that were given in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And Jesus is saying here that everything that had been written about him, in essence, was true. Jesus, the Son of God, came to fulfill every prophecy recorded about Him. You might think about it this way. The prophets were prepping the people for the coming of Christ. I think about the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, talking about the prophets and how they inquired and searched diligently prophesying of the grace that should come unto you. He said, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, testifying beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. So a lot was written about the coming of Jesus, and we talk about Revelation and those 39 books in the Old Testament pointing to the coming of the king, that is, King Jesus. And Jesus is saying here, thus it is written. You remember when Jesus was confronted by the devil, recorded by Matthew in chapter 4? And Jesus would respond to the temptations of the devil by saying, it is written, talking about the Old Testament scriptures, specifically the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy, of course, would have to do with the law of Moses. So there's not only an allusion to the revelation recorded about him, but there is an admission to the responsibility resting upon him. Note again what Jesus said, Thus it is written, 
And thus it was necessary for the Christ, first of all, to suffer. I think about it, I think about the painful work that lay before Jesus during his earthly ministry. Jesus here talks about his suffering. There are many passages of scripture that allude to the suffering of Jesus. Peter said he bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus became obedient unto death, yes, even the death of the cross. The Hebrew writer would tell us in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 that Jesus tasted death for every man. You can go back this week and read the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and relive the trial and the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus suffered. He paid an awful price for our sins. So we talk about the powerful work, secondly, First of all, we think about the painful work, but secondly, the powerful work. Note what is said. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. The crowning achievement of the cross was what? The resurrection. Paul said he was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Christianity rests upon the resurrection of Jesus, doesn't it? Do you remember the Hebrew writer said that Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death? That is the devil. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he was victorious over death itself. As a result of that, we have hope today, don't we? If the resurrection and everything that we read about the resurrection, if it's not true, then we're wasting our time. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if the resurrection is not valid, and he talks about the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, he said if the resurrection is not true, our preaching is vain, our faith is vain. He said we're still in sin. So the bottom line is Christianity stands or falls on the basis of the resurrection. It's that important. And so the fulfillment of the Lord's work. There's a third thing I want you to see in our study, and that has to do with the future of the Lord's work, and that's where we come in. Now, granted contextually, Jesus is speaking to the apostles. So note, if, note with me, if you would, what is said beginning in verse 47. We talk about the future of the Lord's work, and there is what I would call the inauguration of the Great Commission. Listen to what Jesus said, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And He said, You're witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. There are some specifics here that we need to see. First of all, there is a specific place. Where would the church begin? Where would Christianity launch? The city of Jerusalem. You remember Isaiah the prophet? 
Isaiah writing some 750 years before Jesus came to earth. Isaiah in chapter 2 foretold of the coming of the kingdom of God. And he saw it as an exalted mountain into which all nations would flow. And he said the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. And so what Isaiah was doing was pinpointing the place where Christianity would begin. That's the city of Jerusalem. Jesus here identifying that place. You read Acts chapter 2. What do you find? There were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men. And they were there to observe Pentecost, of course. And on that day, what happened? Christianity was launched, wasn't it? The church began, the birth of the church. And so there is a specific, first of all, a specific place. Secondly, there is a very specific plan. Note what Jesus said. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations. We sing the song, the gospel is for all. It's for all. You think about the gospel is intended to bless the human family, whether Jew or Gentile. Isaiah said, all nations would flow into it. Jesus said, go therefore make disciples of all the nations. And we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, as Jesus said, whatever I've commanded you. Jesus is saying that the gospel is intended to go to all people. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, of course, had instructed the apostles to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul would talk about how the gospel had gone into all the world. So you think about the gospel permeating the hearts and lives of people. If you read the book of Acts, you'll find the gospel began in Jerusalem. In chapter 8, the gospel goes to the Samaritans. In chapter 10, the household of Cornelius, the Gentiles. God's plan being achieved. The Bible says that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross, Ephesians 2.16. God's designed the church, housing all people. And then there are specific people mentioned here. Jesus would say to the apostles, and you are witnesses of these things. They had been with the Son of God, hadn't they? They had heard Him. They had seen Him. They had observed the miracles. And so they could be firsthand witnesses to everything. They had the opportunity to share Christ with the world. I mentioned a moment ago, Acts chapter 4, verse 13. The Sanhedrin, of course, took knowledge that Peter and John were uneducated, unlearned men, but they had been with Jesus. And they commanded them not to teach in the name of Jesus anymore. And their response was, we cannot but speak the things we've seen and heard. The Lord Jesus had left a mark upon their hearts. And they had this burning desire to share the gospel. Now I mentioned a moment ago that this is where we come in. We were not eyewitnesses to the things the apostles were. 
But we have the opportunity to share the gospel just as they did, don't we? We have the, the awesome responsibility of taking the gospel into all the world. I think about it in Mark chapter 5. The account of a man that identified himself as legion. He was possessed with demons. And after the Lord had cast out those demons, Jesus said to him, you go home and tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you. Think about all the great things the Lord has done for you. You think about how God has blessed your life. All of us are the recipients of God's blessings. We talk about the physical blessings that we enjoy in this life. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above. We've all been blessed physically, materially, mentally. Those of us who are in Christ, we've been blessed spiritually. And because of what Jesus has done for us, we ought to be willing to share that with other people. The gospel is intended to be communicated to other people. And we are the hands, the feet, the mouths, so to speak, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is a specific promise and a specific power. Of course, on Pentecost Day, the apostles were endowed with the Holy Spirit. And on that day, Luke tells us, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Joel had prophesied of this event many, many years earlier. He talked about how the Lord would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. Their sons and daughters would prophesy. Their young men would dream dreams. Their old men, etc. And so the idea is that on Pentecost Day, the apostles began to speak in other tongues, that is, languages previously unknown to them. What did they preach? The gospel? What happened? People obeyed the gospel. They took what they had heard and they responded accordingly. Luke tells us that those who were assembled cried out and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now look at what the Lord said they were to preach. Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name, that is, by His authority, to all nations. Is that not what they did? Yes. How'd they do it? By the Spirit. So today, how do we preach the gospel? Through the Word. The instrumentality of the Word of God. It is identified by Paul as the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6, verse 16. So you have the inauguration of the Great Commission, and then, secondly, there is the invitation of the Great Commission. Listen again to what Jesus said. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached. I think first of all about the message that is preached. The gospel is the greatest story ever told, isn't it? You think about all of the, the people that have been influenced by the gospel of Christ. Think about the influence of Jesus for the past 2,000 years. The hearts and lives that have been changed. Think about your life. Think about what the Lord has done for you. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul. Paul said that previously, before obeying the gospel, he had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. He said, Howbeit I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. 
the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. The message preached, it is a saving message. It can save you from sin. I don't know what I don't know what was going on in the lives of many of those people that were present on Pentecost Day. But I know one thing, they heard a saving message. A message that could deliver them out of the power of darkness and put them in the kingdom of God's dear Son. You think about some of the things that people struggle with today. Some of the problems that are so common in our world. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and read about the people in Corinth. Some of those people were adulterers. Some were idolaters. Some were living in homosexuality. Some were living in drunkenness. Some were extortioners. And yet, Paul said, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. That's what this message can do. It can radically change your life. And then the messengers... And their preaching. Jesus said that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. Let me ask this question. How are people going to be saved unless we share the gospel with them? I mentioned a moment ago that the thrust of our study today is the fact that the gospel has been placed in our hands. Think about it this way. What if in this city... You are the only Christian left. Let's just say in this congregation, you are the only one left. And so you hold the keys to this building. Your responsibility is to teach, to share the gospel, to talk to others. Over the course of time, how many people would you have reached out to, let's just say over the past year, how many people would you have reached out to to share the gospel with? Now, I understand that we have the responsibility to teach. God's the one that gives the increase. I have no control over what people do with the message. But I have to be sharing that message. If in a year's time, how many people, would you have talked to about Christ? Would there be people attending services here? Or would the building be closed up, boarded up? The gospel's in our hands. We have that responsibility to share it with people. The apostles, they did their job. God gave them a commission, didn't he? And they fulfilled it to the best of their abilities. God has given us, He's given us a charge. What's the charge? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The world for us is our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our classmates, people that we come in contact with on a daily basis. I want to encourage you to think about what the Lord has done for you. And over the next year, I want to challenge you 
to reach out to those around you and share the gospel. Identify one person and do your best to teach them about Christ. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we want you to know that the Bible says that God loves you. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Lord paid the price for your sins. Here's what you need to do to become a child of God today. First, you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. And then you need to repent of your sins, like Jesus said in Luke chapter 24. You need to confess the name of Christ before others, Matthew 10, 32. The Bible then says you're to be immersed in a watery grave of baptism so that you can enjoy the remission of sins, as Jesus said in Luke 24. When you do that, God will then put you in the church. And the reason you need to be in the church is because the Bible says God has promised to save the body, Ephesians 5.23. It may be that you're here today, you're not faithful to the cause of Christ. Could we encourage you to come to Christ, come back to Him, the Bible tells us about the prodigal son in Luke 15. And in verse 17, the scripture says, this young man came to himself. It may be the case that you're out in the world, you're living in sin, you need to come home. I want you to know that God loves you, God wants you home. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love.